Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Ro Khan. And I'm Richard Roper. Time for the Golden Globes. Golden Globes are Sunday, February 28th on NBC television. They are the most entertaining, one of the most influential, and certainly the most ridiculous of all the awards ceremonies <laughs> in all of entertainment. We're going to talk about that in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which I never they never cease to fascinate me in more ways than one. Well, what's interesting... Now the L.A. Times has done what is like a 60 Minutes investigation <laughs> into the Hollywood Foreign Press. We'll talk a little bit about what their findings are and then what it's all going to look like. But first, we must remind you that Screen Time with Rowan Roper is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. That's what she said. Since 1995, <laughs> AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing, driving your overall success. Because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Get started today at AmericanEagle.com. You know, talking about the Golden Globes, Ro, uh, this is one of the award shows that actually continues to increase viewerships through the years, uh, is now the second most watched entertainment award show behind the Oscars, still about half, but it's more than 20 million people tune in because it has been so wildly entertaining over the years. Now, you've got the details, I believe, because this, of course, is a very different awards year, starting with the fact that the Globes are a couple months later than they normally would be. The Academy Awards aren't going to be until late April, and we're still in the middle of this pandemic, hopefully rounding the curve, as people have said. But they're still playing it safe. So we've got two hosts, but they will not be in the same room together. Right. You're going to have a West Coast and East Coast setting for this. You've got Tina Fey in New York at the Rainbow Room, the top of 30 Rockefeller Center. And then <laughs> on the West Coast at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, where it traditionally is held, you're going to have Amy Poehler. And the Beverly Hilton, uh, you and I have both been there many, many times. I've been at some of these award ceremonies. And that's a, that's a great classic hotel as well. Now, I don't know. I know they've had refurbishments over the years. But when I used to go there more frequently in the 2000s and the 2010s, it would be interesting to walk down the hallways and try to guess the identities of some of the stars <laughs> whose framed photographs. You'd be like, okay, I know who that is. Not sure who that was, but they were a big star once. But this is the way they're going to do it. So the hosts will be at their respective venues, as will the presenters. That's an interesting trick because the presenters who would have been in New York, who live in New York, would, will do the New York thing, yeah. or the presenters who were living in California would do the California thing, or are they flying people around the country to do this, to balance it out? I think it's probably where they're based because, of course, Tina Fey lives in New York and right. Amy's based in Los Angeles, Amy Poehler. This is pretty much the blueprint that they did with the Emmys a few months ago, Ro, where Jimmy Kimmel hosted... And they had some of the presenters there with him. And they, some of the comedy was great. Some of it, you know, it's, it's a whole new world. You're, gonna, you're trying out different things. But the nominees for the Golden Globes will all be in remote locales. Now, maybe they're going to put together a little viewing party of their own. They get a, you can get a suite at the Beverly Hilton, so you'd be right in the same hotel, but you won't be in the room where the presentation is taking place. Or you could just be at home. It was kind of fascinating with the Emmys, and I'm sure it will be for the Globes, because in some cases, it was just somebody, you'd see like Mark Ruffalo just in his bedroom or something, you know, with a with an iPhone, <laughs> low-key, great guy. And then like the Shit's Creek crew, it looked like they were having the party of a lifetime. You know, all of them were there, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene but Levy they're, they're and family they're all i mean three of the people in that cast yeah. are related to and each they're other a family so it was great and of course they swept but it was great to see that family camaraderie whether they're actual family or just cast members so i think we'll see that i will say this if you're a nominee 
it's probably they won't say this publicly because they'll talk about how they missed the red carpet and seeing all their peers and salute. Oh, yeah. oh there's Dame somebody and Sir somebody over there and <laughs> that person and I can't believe I'm in the same company of these four other amazing actors, which is all well and good. But I bet you there's and a mostly part bullshit, of it. by the way. Well, yeah, of course. Well, it's Hollywood. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, mm-hmm. that the original sign actually said bullshit, and then they changed <laughs> it to Hollywood Land and Hollywood. Uh, but you know. There's got to be something that they're enjoying in terms of, first of all, you don't have to spend 112 hours getting ready, especially for the women. It's still a sexist world in terms of they get judged a lot more about their gowns than whether or not Coney wore a blue tux or whatever. Uh, but also, if you win, you don't have to pretend to be interested in the rest of the ceremony because you could just turn off your Zoom camera and start partying, you know? That's true. That's true. And if you lose, same thing times 10. You lose, you say, ah, shit. I can't believe Ted Lasso won. And then you just can go, you know, you can turn off the show. You don't have to sit there smiling through the presentation of the Cecil B. DeMille Award and all that other stuff, thinking to yourself, I just want to go to the after party and get soused. I knew I wasn't going to win this thing. I'm up against the Queen's gamut, for God's sake. So I think in some cases, I don't know, for the viewer, it's unique. I think that's the one thing that makes it interesting. I think if you are a fan of these shows, as millions are, you do want to see all the madness on the red carpet and all the silliness where they're all jammed into one room. Well, we talked about this before, but the best part of the Golden Globes is they're getting shit-faced at the table and anything can happen. But we're not going to get that this year. Although, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, I thought, really have always made this show better yeah. than it traditionally was. I mean, Dick Clark used to host it. Yeah, well, I, th- I think Amy Poehler and Tina Fey go down in history alongside, you know, the Steve Martins, uh, early Johnny Carson, Billy Crystal's. Uh, Chris Rock, when he was doing a lot of, as among the greatest hosts of any award show, they can handle it so beautifully. I guarantee you, they won't phone this in. If they're going to be in def- different locations, they'll come up with some funny bits. They're both wonderful writers. I mean, they both really came up as writers and still, I think, consider themselves primarily writers, even though they're amazing entertainers. So I think that'll be interesting to see as well, what they do with the ceremony and and the fact that it's such a unique event. I think by 2021, it'll be back to the normal bullshit, as you call it. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, so in terms of presenters, people were looking forward to Aquafina. She's not for anything this year, though, I don't think, right? Uh, yeah, or did I got she my win ballot. last we'll year? Look, we'll look at the ballot later, but I think she should be up every year for something, and, and she's great. I love Aquafina. She'll be a fun presenter. Many of the presenters are former either nominees or winners. Sure. Well, and, and you know, it's pretty interesting in some cases when you've got your uh, Helena Bonham Carters or your Meryl Streeps or your Anthony Hopkins, they all have like 117 Golden Globe nominations. I'll say, you know, it's not the Oscars because there's more cat, you know, there's a little more openness here, but, you know, and there's TV categories as well. But it's always amazing when they're like, this is the third win and 147th nomination. Interestingly, there are people who have upcoming projects that also get invited to be presenters. They're not necessarily winners or past winners. You've got Tiffany Haddish, who's got something coming up. Margot Robbie is actually a recipient. Anthony Anderson, Kate Hudson, Kenan Thompson, who has not won a Golden Globe, but he's certainly a guy at NBC that they want to promote. So you're saying that Kenan Thompson, who's on Saturday Night Live on NBC and now has his own self-titled sitcom on NBC, is going to be on NBC Mm -hmm. at the Golden Globes. What a shocker. Of course, you know, speaking of SNL, for 40-plus years, I'd say probably 75% of the guest hosts had a movie or some other project coming out the week they were hosting or the week before they were hosting hmm. or the week after they were hosting. And I always love that uh, the baseball coverage, like if, if the World Series is on Fox 
and the you know the it's the Dodgers Yankees game, and they're in the fourth row there, and they're the stars of the new Vampire Teen series on Fox, and you can tell like you know the dude's got his Dodgers cap that still has the tag on it, yes, and the girls on the phone, and they're like, oh yes, we're we're big fans of the ball base game, we enjoy it so much. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's listen, it's all tell, part of the hype, you know. And you can tell they're sitting there and they just can't wait for that to be over, so they can get back up to the suite and get away from the other people who are breathing on them. We yeah. understand that those people aren't really. Oh look, who just happens to be here? I'll tell you, this is a true story. Years ago, uh, the Chicago White Sox were hosting the All Star Game, and as you know, Ro, I had season tickets for years and years and mm-hmm. years, so I had a ticket as a fan, not as a member of the press. And it was a great seat behind home plate. And they rotated the people who sat next to me, inning by inning, the various celebrities who would sit next to me just long enough to get on camera. You'd see a lot of my elbow and knee while they were shooting the real celebrity and sign a few autographs. And then they'd be whisked away back to the seat. So, yes, it's all part of the hype, which I think leads us to the Los Angeles Times talking about the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and the hype machine there. And you mentioned uh, this article, which is like the equivalent of a 60 Minutes piece. And I want to give credit to Stacey Perman and John Rottenberg, the writers of this article for the L.A. Times. And it's uh, it's titled Golden Globes uh, Voters in Tumult. You never want tumult in a headline about whatever you're doing. Members accuse Hollywood Foreign Press Association of self-dealing and and ethical lapses. Members of the actual uh, body itself, who are, of course, quoted anonymously. Just to recap for folks, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which sounds like something that Joe Biden would be addressing at the United Nations, (laughs) is a group of about 90 full and part-time journalists who must be based in Hollywood and write and and or broadcast for foreign-based publications. Some of them only have to do four articles a year to be a member. They're very tight-lipped about who gets to become a member. And those 90 members get to decide who wins, who gets nominated. So you only need like 20-some votes, and you could win a Golden Globe. And this piece goes into some of the questions about how they do Uh things. Um, One thing I found actually shocking, Ro, is that NBC is now paying over $27 million to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, up from just a few million dollars a few years ago. Now, they have all kinds of charitable works and associations, Mm -hmm. but they also have all kinds of boards and committees, and their members serve on various boards and committees and get paid out of that fund way more than they're getting paid as journalists. So that, you know, that's part of it. That's how they keep going. They also detail the very expensive junket that the members took to Paris for the uh, set visit of Emily in Paris, the Lily Collins Netflix hit show, where even the people on the show were shocked when it got two Golden Globe nominations, including one for Lily Collins, who plays Emily, who's in Paris. And there's also, you know, they get into some of the details about how in the past they've accepted gifts and they're trying not to do that anymore. You know, when, you, when you're being flown to Paris and you're being put up in hotel suites that cost not even hundreds, but maybe thousands of dollars a night, and you're getting lavish buffets and all that sort of thing, will it influence whether or not something gets a nomination? You tell me. I think for sure, and we're going to get to the odds in just a few minutes, but I want to give you this odd. Emily in Paris is up for best television series, musical, or comedy, is the biggest long shot at 14 to 1 to win. You know, I never advocate anybody take my betting advice. It's for informational purposes only. But 14 to 1, if I could put a dollar, I would bet that dollar for the same reason. If it got nominated, Mm -hmm. it might win. Because I don't think the Hollywood Foreign Press Association cares 
about backlash like that, that they'd be like, ooh, I have been shamed. I now must vote for something else. I don't think it's going to win. And Lily Collins, I think, is a terrific actress and a, a wonderful person. I've talked to her several times. She sent up, you know, a statement saying how grateful she is and how everybody works hard on the show. I think they were all pretty stunned that it got nominated. It's not an awards type of show. It's, it's, it's by design a modern-day sex in the city. The city's Paris. It's light. Mm-hmm. It's sexy. It's gossipy. It's fashion-oriented. But... It got nominated, and you know maybe it's pure coincidence that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association got to go to the set of Emily and Pierce. Other other journalists did as well, and so, had a great time. So the other shows nominated in that category you got Schitt's Creek, which won everything last year at the Emmys. Mm-hmm. Ted Lasso, The Great, and The Flight Attendant. If Emily and Paris, which is not as good a show as any of the rest of those, <laughs> yeah, wins. Will people take this as seriously, or is it just about the TV show and the party? I think it's mostly about the TV show and the party. I think people in the industry will be snickering and, and saying, oh, that's classic, but I don't think it'll then, you know, I don't know if you can damage the credibility of an organization that <laughs> it doesn't really thrive on credibility. And you mentioned those. Maybe we can talk a little bit about some of these categories, Ro. You mentioned that TV series, musical, or comedy. Uh, I think Ted Lasso is going to win. You know, for one thing, again, we're talking about the Hollywood Foreign Press. And and it's set in London, and it's all about this American football coach who's kind of the buffoon, but then turns out not to be. Jason Sudeikis is actually terrific. But I think that might resonate more than some of these other shows. Uh, You know, Schitt's Creek, though, I mean, it did so well at the Emmys. Obviously a very different group of voters, but it was the last season. And and all award shows love to reward final seasons. That's true. So Best Television Limited Series or Motion Picture, you got The Queen's Gambit, Unorthodox, Small Acts, The Undoing, and Normal People. Queen's Gambit is the odds-on favorite. That's what I think you could bank on. You know, every year, whether it's the Globes or the Emmys or the Academy Awards, there are certain, I think, shoe-ins. And The Queen's Gambit, first of all, deserves to win. It was beautifully done, but it really kind of just seized the consciousness, not only of American viewers, but viewers around the globe. They just love that show. So it was kind of a perfect marriage of uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who, by the way, will win for Best Actress as well. The series, the material, the way it was done. And it's one of those things where you're like, wait a minute. It's about a fictional chess prodigy in the 50s and 60s who kind of grows up in this orphanage, has an addiction to pills, and then becomes a world chess master. Because when I got that plot description, I've told you this, row. I thought, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to watch that. And then it's one of those shows, seven minutes into it, you're like, well, all right, this is greatness. It also makes her a gigantic star. She's really great in it, and you can see her doing a million other things now. I think it was interesting, too. The showrunners have been asked time and again, will there be a, a second season? Because it ends, you know, there's still a lot of life ahead for this character. And they say, and I, I give them a lot of credit for this, they feel the story they wanted to tell has been told. And they want to just leave it at that. Now, sometimes people say that and then there's an extra zero on a check (laughs) or something else happens. Of course, it also would depend on Anya Taylor-Joy. If she doesn't want to do it, then it's not done. They could do a spiritual sequel that picks up at that time and follows the story of some other character. I think in this case, there's a lot of limited series where I'm like, oh, we got to get a season two. We got to get a season two. I think this is just what it should be. It's like a great novel. I don't want to read another chapter. It ended how it should have ended. Beautifully done. So moving over to the motion picture category, which, again, in the pandemic is confusing because these are things you're watching mostly on television. And what's the difference between something that was made for TV versus made for the big screen? For musical or comedy, you got Hamilton, Borat, subsequent movie film, The Prom, Palm Springs, and music. Music is 
50 to 1 to win this thing. I'm going to take all the long shots if I were to gamble. I would take all of the long shots on this thing because because it's the Hollywood Foreign Press and the fix could be in, as we just mentioned. Hamilton's a favorite. Yeah, and, you know, Hamilton, there was even a debate whether or not it's a movie. Is it a filmed musical? I thought it was a movie. It's not eligible for the Oscars. I think it'd be great if it won. Music is that film... And Kate Hudson got nominated for Best Actress as well. And this is a film that was reviled by almost all critics. Uh, Sia, the music sensation, is the director of this. And it's about an autistic girl who has this fantasy world. And I thought it was just excruciatingly bad when I got a chance to see it. So 50 to 1 seems kind. Yeah. In terms of the betting numbers, Mm -hmm. I kind of like Palm Springs at 15 to 1. Oh, I like the film as well. Uh, If people haven't had a chance to see it, Palm Springs, Andy Samberg, it's essentially... A comedic update of Groundhog Day. And there have been a lot of Groundhog Day-esque movies through the years. I think this is the best one since Groundhog Day. Best actor in a motion picture drama. You got Chadwick Boseman, Anthony Hopkins, Riz Ahmed, Gary Oldman, and Tahar Rahim. Chadwick Boseman is the odds-on favorite here. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. I don't see there's any way that he doesn't get this. The only uh, other contender, I think, and those are five great performances, by the way, but uh, Anthony Hopkins, you can never discount an Anthony Hopkins performance, and he's playing in The Father, a man who's going kind of through the deeper stages of dementia and losing sight of what's real and what's not. It's a brilliant performance. It's also the kind of performance that wins awards, but it's Chadwick Boseman, the, you know, the late Chadwick Boseman, uh, career-crowning performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, uh, you know, it's it's such a tragedy. We lost him. I don't think he's going to win these awards because people are like, well, he's gone and it's the last time we'll have a chance to see him on screen. I think he's going to win because the performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is transcendent. Best Actress nominees in a motion picture drama, Carrie Mulligan, Viola Davis, Frances McDormand, Vanessa Kirby, and Andra Day. If it were up to me, mm-hmm. it would be Andra Day. We're going to talk about her movie coming up in just a few minutes. And she's at 40 to 1 wow. to win this really? thing. I think that it, it's one of the most spectacular performances you'll ever see for a first time out. 40 to 1. Who's the favorite in this category? Favorite in this category is Carrie Mulligan at 1 to 2. In Promising Young Woman, which is, a, again, a, a brilliant performance. But all five of these, you know, Vanessa Kirby, who's in, there's Promising Young Woman, then she's in Pieces of a Woman, and that's a, a searing performance as well. Also... She was in that crown show that they love so much. So, you know, she might get some some crown ripple effect. But So watch that. But, boy, 40 to 1 for uh, Andre Day. That, that surprises me. That's a great – I mean, it almost always is, but that's really a loaded category this year. All five of those performances are Golden Globe-worthy and Oscar-worthy. Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. We mentioned this before. The odds-on favorite at 1 to 4 is – Maria Bakalova from the Borat subsequent movie film. Yeah, you know, I like the film. You liked it, I think, more than I did, and the performances. I mean, to me, yes, she's acting. She is an actress and very talented. Uh, to me, it doesn't have the depth and the challenging material that some of these other actors, you know, including uh, our friend Anya Taylor-Joy, who was in Emma. Michelle Fiverr's in a film called French Exit that most people haven't seen yet. I can, I can confirm she's great in that. But to me, you know, if you look at what Rosamund Pike does in I Care A Lot, which just debuted recently on Netflix, or Michelle Pfeiffer, what they do is a totally different level above uh, the performance in the uh, subsequent movie film. But you say one to four, so I guess she's captured the hearts. I wonder if the Hollywood Foreign Press Association realizes that she is acting. 
<laughs> and doesn't look like that. And what's really fascinating is that they're trying to push her for an Oscar nomination here. Yeah. There was an article about how difficult this movie was to make because they're out there doing this guerrilla style. They're the only ones who know that they're faking it. Everybody else around them thinks it's yeah. real. And so there was actual physical peril for them. They think they're going to get a Golden Globe out of that, which I happen to agree with them they are. Will they get an Oscar nomination out of it? It might be a bridge too far. I think it is. And listen, it's much harder now than it was 15 or 20 years ago when Sasha Baron Cohen wasn't so famous and his characters weren't so famous. He gets recognized even in character a lot. But again, you know, I think Hollywood is still, even though it's made a lot of strides, is still pretty traditional. And I don't think they're going to look at Borat's subsequent movie film and the trial of the Chicago 7 and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Nomadland and say, let's make room for Borat. And what's great about this particular time in history, and there's very little that is great about it, is that you can watch the Golden Globes or subsequently you'll be able to watch the Oscars and then immediately turn on the movie they want. And you can see them in the run-up after the nominations are announced, whereas in the past, as recently as last year, the Oscar nominations get announced. And I hear from people all across the country who say, well, it's only playing in two or three markets. They don't even get to see a lot of these films. But as you mentioned, now they do. Coming up, a new take on the Thursday Three. We're going to talk about two movies and a documentary that focus on the United States of America going after its own people. I'm Bob Burke, founder and chairman of Burke America Parts Group, a family of brands that includes RepairClinic.com, an appliance and HVAC parts solution company that's grown into an international brand. Before AmericanEagle.com, we partially launched a new technology platform developed by another firm. American Eagle helped take our technology to a whole new level with digital marketing, software development, and business insights into our key markets, appliances, HVAC, and outdoor power equipment, and did so both on time and on budget. AmericanEagle.com has the resources, experience, and talent needed to produce solutions. Our new technology platform developed by AmericanEagle.com has produced tremendous results with higher traffic, conversion, engagement, and online revenue. If you have any home repairs you need to take care of, check us out at RepairClinic.com. If you need a world-class website or technology project, then I would highly recommend AmericanEagle.com. Call AmericanEagle.com at 773-NETWORK. That's AmericanEagle.com, 773-NETWORK. This is what we call the people beat. Started in 1966 by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. It's the beat that manifests in you, the people. They can't never stop the party unless they stop the people. Wait, you have? Ain't you have? I'm hard of the people. I'm hard. I'm hard. Of the people. So if you ask to make a commitment at age 20, you said I'm too young to die, then you're dead already. That's Daniel Kaluuya in Judas and the Black Messiah. Definitely going to get an Oscar nomination for this film. It's a powerful film, Rowan. It's interesting because Daniel Kaluuya is being touted as best supporting actor for his performance as Fred Hampton of the Black Panther Party, and rightfully so because Lakeith Stanfield, as the confidential informant who infiltrates the Panthers, has more screen time in this film. I'm very conflicted about this movie. Hmm. It takes on the issue of the FBI looking at the Black Panther Party and other protest organizations as being potential terrorist organizations. And in some cases, 
there were acts of overt domestic terrorism that went on in the 1960s and in the 1970s. And they touch on that as a real thing. But there is a moment in the movie where they start to lionize a guy who was a gang leader in Chicago. It's a very small part in the film. And that guy becomes an ally of the Black Panther Party, and he sends his young shorties out to help them rebuild their headquarters after there is a firebombing. They, they do all kinds of, of you know, community outreach sorts of things. And that character is based on a gang leader in Chicago who's still alive. He's in prison. He's serving a lifetime prison sentence who has probably been responsible for more deaths of more young black men than anybody else in the United States of America who's still alive today. I mean, point's absolutely well taken, Ro. You know, when you get fictional retellings of some very complicated true life historical events that in this case, as you mentioned, this is almost all set in Chicago. They filmed it in Cleveland, but the events are set mostly in Chicago. Uh, Yeah, that's true. And I think the filmmakers did a good job overall of making sure that we saw two sides to the story. I mean, there's a scene where a Black Panther Party member flat out just murders to Chicago police officers who are just making an arrest. There's no there's no conflict there. There's no shootout. There's no it's clearly just murder in Shoots its worst in the form. Back. Shoots him in the back. Fred Hampton, you know, is is a complex character, but the truth is that Fred Hampton and very young when he was was shot and killed in the dead of night, you know, had done a ton of good. You know, it is historical fact that, you know, clinics were built, medical clinics were built on the west side that Fred Hampton I think primarily was about getting help for the neighborhoods, you know, having voices that weren't heard being heard. But, you know, there's the speeches in there too where he talks about killing pigs, you know, talking about murdering police officers. So it's not this, you know, this this biography that turns him into a hero. And again, it's a lot of it is about the conflict with the Lakeith Stanfield character. He's a crook. He's a guy that avoids hard prison time and infiltrates the Panthers and then has some conflicts himself. But some of the most fascinating sequences, Jesse Plemons, who's a a great, great actor, he's playing an FBI agent based on a real-life character who's kind of uh, coaching Lakeith Stanfield's character through this whole thing. And then Martin Sheen as J. Edgar Hoover. And, you know, whatever their motivations may have been, we know one thing, there was a lot of racism behind it. This movie took some shortcuts narratively, as all movies do. You have to have heroes and villains. Too much heroism, I think, for the Black Panther Party, too much vilification of the FBI, because that story in real life is far more nuanced than that. And there continue to be books and articles and documentaries, and there will be for decades to come, about that particular piece of Chicago and national history. In a similarly themed film, The United States versus Billie Holiday, this is a performance of a lifetime by Andre Day playing Billie Holiday. Andre Day is an accomplished singer and does a magnificent job of performing flat-out performance numbers in this film as Billie Holiday. Uh, but she had never really done any type of acting that you know that, that we've seen in the movies, and she's incredible, the performance as well. Now, this one, wrote very well documented. The, the truth is, yes, Billie Holiday was a heroin addict and you know got busted. To this day, that's still obviously a serious crime. But in, in, in this story... The government's going after Billie Holiday because she sang a song called Strange Fruit, which was about lynchings Mm -hmm. 
in the American South, thousands of them. And it was almost as if she were doing a news report in the form of this song. And the FBI was like, we got to stop this. This is going to cause trouble. An insurrection. They said it was going to cause an insurrection in the United States, which I find incredibly ironic given given what's what's happening now. now. And, And the harassment she endured, Billie Holiday endured. And again, this is a case where, in this case, it's not a confidential informant. And again, it's based on a real life character. It's, an operative with the newly formed narcotics task force who's black, who infiltrates Billy's camp. And they even know that he's a fed and she enters into a romance with him and he's conflicted. At one point they show him shooting up heroin to prove he's one of them. So it, it's very complicated. It, you know, it, it kind of follows the standard biopic that we've seen, you know, in the stories about Judy Garland and so many other star crossed personalities who were, had these, you know, incredible self-destructive tendencies in Billie Holiday's case she also endured abuse from one man after another whether it was a manager a husband the FBI whatever the case may be to her dying day where she was shackled to a bed as she was dying because her whole body was giving out from years of abuse drug abuse and receiving abuse uh, so you know, I know people are hearing this and they're going, "Wow, that sounds like a downer." Oh, it's film. heavy. It's heavy, and it is heavy, but it also soars to the heavens in some of the performance numbers, and it's it's a it's a brilliant performance. But it, as you say, it it follows a very similar theme in terms of the government going after very public figures to not only just take them down, but kind of to send a message. And then there's the HBO documentary MLK FBI. And again, I think a lot of people know that Martin Luther King was the target of all kinds of campaigns and investigations by the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover was obsessed with him and talked about how he was going to start a communist revolution. And in fact, he, he, he even used the term, you know, we don't want a black messiah. That term was used by J. Edgar Hoover. It's still kind of shocking and appalling to see the extent to which the FBI and various operatives harassed him. There was a package at one point sent to Coretta Scott King, uh, alleging that if she listened to this tape, she'd hear Martin Luther King engaging in various activities and that he should kill himself, this targeted harassment. They kind of accidentally came across the fact that Martin Luther King had extramarital affairs and they wanted to use that to blackmail him. Listen, he wasn't a saint, we know that. Uh, But this film is also a reminder of the fact that These days, and we just saw this recently in Martin Luther King Day, everybody's tweeting, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, everybody's quoting Martin Luther King, and you'll see loved ones uh, of Martin Luther King saying, you know, you probably would have hated my father, or you would have hated my uncle. Uh, Martin Luther King throughout the 60s, and I think this is mentioned in the documentary, J. Edgar Hoover always polled much more positively with Americans, his public image, than Martin Luther King. And it, it reminds us of that, too, that even though Martin Luther King... Uh, was rightfully you know adored and worshipped and was a great leader uh he was also despised by millions even when he was at the peak of his popularity well and that's just part of the toxin of racism in america it just no matter who you are if you're standing up and saying hey look at me as a human don't look at me as a race you're going to get the slings and the arrows it's an interesting double feature to see MLK FBI first, and then the United States versus Billie Holiday. Because you get to see the attempt to take down a political figure, as Martin Luther King was, versus just a pop culture figure, Billie Holiday. And they use a lot of the same technique because they were afraid that these people were going to be too popular. And that's why 
after you sit through the two hours of the United States versus Billy Holiday and you walk away from it thinking, man, that was that was pretty brutal. Mm. That's the kind of movie that sticks with you forever. And then the historical document of MLK FBI is an important one for people just to understand the balance between public safety and personal responsibility needs to be clearly articulated and the rights of individuals need to be safeguarded. And it might sound a little bit like we're giving uh, history assignments to everybody saying you must see these films and they're valuable and important. The truth is they're also really, really well-made films. The documentary is extremely well put together and the two other films, you know, there are great performances and great writing and editing. So a lot of times people think, oh gosh, I feel like I almost have to see that. I think in most cases, in all three of these cases, you'll be grateful that you did. On the next podcast, we'll recap some of the stuff we saw at the Golden Globes and what it means for the rest of award season because you got the SAG Awards and you got the Oscars coming up in the next number of weeks. It is award season and, you know, in the grand scheme of things with so many other heavy things going on, it's a lot of fun to speculate on this and to make fun of and celebrate these great performances and great filmmakers. And we want to thank everybody, as always, Roe, for listening to us on one of the 564 million platforms. <laughs> We're very grateful to be available on, and we really appreciate it if you not only download, but if you subscribe. And we've been getting some great feedback. In fact, next week we're gonna we're gonna share some of the feedback we've been getting. And don't worry, I'll shield you from the ones you don't need to hear. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> also, uh, some of the people who are feeding back to us may end up on the podcast. There is a plan for that. Oh. So we uh, well just just let us know how we're doing. The Roan Rover Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and much, much more. Go to AmericanEagle.com for all the information. Special thanks to our executive producers, Renee Nelson and Tim Alanius, plus our musical and production director, Brian Altimer. We'll see you next time.